0: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime. I'm your host, Mark Locks, from Brisbane in Australia. And today I am really, really pleased to be talking to Paul Lieberman about his new book, Gangster Squad, which a lot of people will probably have seen at the movies recently. Hi, Paul. How are you going?
1: I'm doing very well. That's wonderful. How's the weather over there, by the way? Uh, Unfortunately, summer has not yet arrived. So uh, I'm waiting anxiously for that. Yeah, well, we're waiting for winter, so
0: we're doing the reverse over here. It's been a, a bit of a strange year, but we're happier than you probably of the situation. Yes. I suspect
1: <laughs> we are. All oh, I was in the city and uh, yesterday, and women were starting to show off their short dresses. So uh, all was not bad with the world. That's right. <laughs> There's positive sides to it. Uh, Right,
0: well, we might get the uh, discussion started just with a bit of background about yourself. So what was your career path that ended up with you writing this book?
1: Well, I've I've covered the kind of fringe of normality and organized crime for many years. I was a journalist uh, in New York, Atlanta, and then Los Angeles. And uh, I always gravitated to kind of fringe experiences in the world i like characters who were caught in uh... unusual and dire uh... circumstances and i always like to see how they made sense of that and included in this was a lot of work about organized crime whether it be the traditional new york italian mafia uh... i had a chance to write in the south of new york about what was called uh... south of america the Dixie Mafia that was heavily into moonshining. Uh, when I lived in Los Angeles, I did a, a series of looks at uh, mobsters who got into the film business, and that was very interesting because you had two societies that were uh, how should I say built on a lot of talk. We call BS. They both posture and, you know, make themselves out to be big shots and do a lot of talking. Hollywood and the mob. So that was very interesting. So and then I wrote about. Uh, yes, I wrote about other uh, uh, forms of organized crime. I mean, even Armenians who were heavily in Los Angeles and uh, there were a series of murders tied to the garment industry. Uh, you know, something as mundane as controlling sewing. And all these characters were being killed over control of sewing, uh, serving the garment industry. So I've written a lot about organized crime, and it's not the only thing I've written about. But I always was interested in the reality of it, you know, not the fictionalized version. Because there's a lot of mythology about the gangsters, particularly in America. So there's a parallel track of what a, what the public experiences, largely through movies. And then you would have the reality of what gangsters were really like. I mean, the real characters might very well be caught putting slugs in a payphone. You know, they won't even pay for their uh, phone calls. They want to save a little money. And you'll have a character winds up being arrested because he's not going to put a dollar in a payphone. You know, so that's the sort of reality you often get versus the uh, – the kind of movie image of gangsters. So there's an, I'm also been interested in the tension between those two. So that's really, and I've I've written about a lot of other things. I spent several years tracking a hospital killer. One of these killers who worked the graveyard shift and uh, injected a lot of patients with uh, paralyzing drugs. They call them angels of death. And I found that very intriguing too. It's one of the most common forms of mass killing. So it's not the most positive side of human nature, you know, these uh, these subjects, but uh, it's always interesting, and uh, I, I really get into them. I often have a chance to work, I've had, uh, you know, a year, two years, I'm very patient, and I get to know my subject.
2: Yeah, well,
0: I mean, talking about the tension between movies and reality is something we'll talk about in relation to your book, actually, later in the interview as well. But um, I I actually bought your book when I was at a conference in Chicago last year, and I went to buy a book about organized crime in Chicago and saw yours and thought, well, I know nothing about organized crime in Los Angeles. So it's unusual to choose that location as a topic for the organized crime genre, I suppose.
1: Well, Los Angeles was obsessed with not being like cities like Chicago. Uh, You know, Los Angeles was supposed to be the city of sunshine, the city of... uh, palm trees, the city of self invention. Now we know we're all sophisticated so you understand that image does not necessarily uh, coincide with reality. And I for one, I'm not going to jump up and down you know, to point out that image is is phony. You know, promotion is often phony. There were a lot of writers in the early de- in earlier times in Los Angeles when it just was coming into its own as a city. Some of the great writers who wrote about Los Angeles, you know, relished pointing out the uh, hypocrisy of it. I mean, the the young girls who came for Hollywood fame, who wound up uh, in degradation along the. Hollywood Boulevard, you know, they would discover that, uh, uh, you know, Days of the Locust and things like that, or that uh a lot of the self-promotion was about selling real estate. You know, the Hollywood sign originally was a real estate-developed Hollywood land. Yes. So you, I mean, the writers in a certain part of the century loved telling Los Angeles how phony it was. Well, I mean, I, I don't get all excited about that. Yes, obviously, self-promotion and, uh, you know, people trying to sell things create phony images. So what? But when it came to the mob, uh, Los Angeles did not want to be like what they called the cesspool cities. You know, Chicago, New York, Detroit, uh, places where mobsters were shooting each other in public and, uh, and mob really was a problem, you know, controlled, whole businesses like uh, the docks you know labor the the workers who worked in the ports it uh controlled construction trades so there were, the mob was a real was not a fiction obviously in places like New York and Chicago and Detroit and during the period where there was prohibition where you couldn't you know alcohol was illegal obviously the mob made a fortune uh providing alcohol so uh that was all real but in los angeles you could go back to the 1800s and you would see this obsession with the bad guys are coming our way uh, to get the good weather and while they're here they're going to victimize us so there was this obsession that went back more than a century in los angeles about uh, not being like these other cities so any hint of organized crime in los angeles caused city officials to go berserk basically So uh, I found that intriguing in itself, and it's what made Los Angeles different than these other places. Uh, It it was going to overreact to any hint of organized crime.
0: Yep. Well, One of the other themes in your book, too, is the idea that, yes, organized crime happened there, but the organized criminals themselves and the people who then respond to them are all migrants. So there's this theme of everybody moving to the sunshine in Los Angeles and bringing with them their prior career paths,
1: essentially exactly. and And it's you know one of the things that fascinated me was how the characters got there. Uh, you know, and people did often come for the weather, and there was this image of the place where you know streets were lined with gold. You could invent yourself. It was a place. I mean, California itself was built up on the idea of instant riches through gold, big gold rushes. And, you know, that was the first wave to California. Later on, people had fantasies of making a living either in real estate or uh, the movies. And then there there really were some get-rich-quick industries. I mean, oil was discovered in California. Uh, this all happened in the middle of the 20th century. And then you had a huge growth around World War II. It was the center for the... Uh, munitions industry, which then became aerospace. So all of a sudden Los Angeles, which was sort of uh, for a long time the end of the railroad lines, California was until, you know, it didn't grow up till the railroads reached there. All of a sudden it was a giant city. And, uh, you know, so again, everybody, but everybody came from somewhere else. You're absolutely right. Nobody is from Los Angeles. And that's the irony. So the city that's all the people that are fighting to keep city pure from these invaders, the mobsters that are viewed as invaders, they're all from somewhere else themselves. And I became fascinated with how every character wound up in the city. I mean, one of the cops, his father came to uh, try to find gold. You know, right, if if your uh, listeners know about movies, right out of the Humphrey Bogart uh, film, Treasure of the the Sierra Madre, you know, where they're gold mining in Mexico. One of these characters' father did just that. Uh, You know, uh, one of them actually came west, the family, in a covered wagon. You know, so, it, and they were farm-oriented. So it was almost interesting how one character after another uh, made their way. Yep. And, uh, by the way, also character, California was viewed as a place with miracle cures. If you had an illness, you'd come to the good weather and there were, uh, you know, they would cure you.
0: Well, you actually talk about two major um criminal masterminds, if you really want to use that term, the two most uh, successful criminals, one's a, a con artist and the other one's much more of a bootlegger. Do you want to talk about them? Tell, tell me.
1: Yes I, y- y- yes, I will. I mean, I got interested in... Uh, uh, you, you're talking about the Waylands, right? That's right. Fred Way. Well, one of the characters who was unknown that I, I sort of stumbled on, and you always... Uh, the other character is Mickey Cohen, who was a well-known figure and almost overdone. I mean, Mickey Cohen became identified with Los Angeles uh, after the death of Bugsy Siegel. I mean, so Bugsy, and he's
0: the character in the recent movie that they concentrate on.
1: Yeah, well, Bugsy Siegel gets uh, killed in Los Angeles, and uh, and he was a real kind of showboat. In fact, he you know he auditioned for the movies. So, I mean, it was. He came west, and he had been part of. Let me let me go back to Bugsy first. I'll get into that as a lead into Mickey. Bugsy had been from New York, where he was part of the alliance of street kids, uh, most Italian, but also some Jewish. Who really started up the mafia? And he was a childhood friend of a guy named Lucky Luciano. So you had this alliance, and Lucky will became one of the, the key figures in the development of the Italian mafia in uh, America. So uh, Siegel, Benjamin Siegel's his name, although outsiders called him Bugsy. He goes to Los Angeles, and when he comes to Los Angeles, they don't even. They sort of forget his background in New York. It's not like he was in the newspapers. There was not television then. You know, the newsreels didn't do much. So he's like, a, he's known as a sporting figure. And he comes to Los Angeles and he, he helps bring racing wires. Horse racing was new to town. And, you know, again, these things are fascinating. If you look at society, uh, horse racing was, you know, the major entertainment in the country and the number one form of gambling. So bookmakers largely took uh, bets on horse races, and Bugsy had an interest on behalf of the mob in one of these racing wires that provided all the information to bookies and others, and that became a way to control a lot of bookmaking. And he actually was a very rich guy. He had a big mansion, a legitimate mansion. He was not a phony. So he also developed the first giant casino in Las Vegas, and then all of a sudden, one day, he gets uh, uh, shot. He's sitting in his, uh, actually, his girlfriend's mansion in in Beverly Hills, and someone shoots him from through a window, and uh, that's the end of Bugsy. And at that point, this guy named Mickey Cohen, who'd been a boxer and the kind of street thug, and he idolized the the fancy-dressing kind of mobster, almost the cliché mobster, the ones who really put on a good act. And Mickey then had been mentor to, had been disciple to Bugsy. When Bugsy gets killed, Mickey rises up the ranks, and then he's uh, the most identified mobster in Los Angeles. Now, he never had the same sort of mansion that Bugsy did. Uh, But Mickey then becomes, how does he become quintessentially Los Angeles' mobster. Uh, It's almost astonishing. Any smart gangster, which you well know, you try to be as invisible as possible. I mean, you don't advertise yourself. But there's always been a tradition in America, and I don't know, maybe your country as well, where certain hoodlums or gangsters love people to know what they're doing. And he was a showboat and a publicity hound. So he poses... For the number one magazine in America, Life magazine, your your you know your listeners in your country may not know it, but it was oh, no, we have it, yes, definitely. the same thing. So he goes and poses. It would be today, you know, going on the number one television show. He invites them into his house to take pictures of his mirrored boudoir that it for his wife, uh, take pictures of his little doggies in the backyard take picture of his clothes closet I mean how stupid is this and he also would taunt the police so he liked being the gangster so you know that's what's unique about Los Angeles and it what I said before about Los Angeles being a city that doesn't want to be like those cesspools back east you don't rub the city the, the nose of city fathers in the fact that you're a gangster and, and Mickey exaggerated what he did I mean Like Bugsy, he did have control over, at one point, a lot of bookmakers. They were dependent on him for protection and information. But that really faded away fairly soon, and he was uh, almost like a a performer. You know, they call it today performance art. He paraded around. He had three Cadillacs, uh, you know, carrying him and his men. And he would speed along the streets and go to the nightclubs. You know, it was a... Made a spectacle of himself. You couldn't miss him. So uh, he did this in the city that uh, didn't want this sort of performance. So in a way, he he invited the city to crack down on him. So he was one of the hoodlums. Now the other one that intrigued me was a con man. So Mickey is is. You know, he's making a headline every day. At a certain point, uh, you know, he's a giant figure. This unknown character that intrigued me was a fellow named Fred Whalen, and he was right. Grew up in a little town on the Mississippi River, right in the middle of America. And I mentioned before that there were, you know, particularly in the early part of the 20th century, we're going down, we're going back now more than a century. Los Angeles and California had all these. Uh, spas and clinics that promised uh, miracle cures for any disease. Uh, Fred Whalen's father had uh, consumption you know uh, tuberculosis when it was common. He came out himself to California hoping for a miracle cure uh, in like 1910 and he didn't get the miracle cure. He got homesick. He came back home to this little town on the Mississippi and then his father dies. His father was a railroad worker. But this guy, Fred Whalen, early on, was a great pool player. And he learned to hustle pool along the Mississippi. And started making his money even as a kid. You know, he would... you you probably seen the film The Hustler. And he was, he was a combination of the characters in The Hustler with the characters in The Sting. Because part of the idea is... Uh, of a great hustler, of course, is to find suckers who don't know they're being suckered. So from the earliest age, he would he would do things not only play people in pool where he was a kid, would sort of pretend to be not so good and then you you know you surprise people, but he would go into churches where preachers were uh, you know trying to save people's souls and they would, they would have these churches and uh, revival meetings in big barns and uh they had a whole act going and even as a little kid this guy fred wayland understood that the preachers uh were a form of con artists themselves so he would spoil their act he would either keep singing and never stop or he would uh he would see someone shaking in the aisles you know they would be overcome by the spirit of the lord And instead of, he would recognize that the person doing that was probably in cahoots with the preacher. So he would cover them up with his coat, and he would spoil the act. So this was the side, and then the preacher would have to pay this little guy, Fred Whalen, who would always spoil the act. He'd pay him $5 to stay away. So he was a great con man from birth. And at some point when he's about in his early 20s, he gets married, he has two little kids. And he gathers them up and say, "We're going to California," and he goes across the country with another hustle. I mean he hustles in every little town and he's basically uh conning his way to Los Angeles, where he then becomes uh, one of the great bootleggers he, he arrives just in time for prohibition, and like any any other bootlegger, he has his boats that help uh, bring in the liquor. He has front businesses, he used dry cleaning shops. So you have the life of this guy who's a con man. And then finally, he culminates it all with this great sting where he goes around to hospitals uh, pretending to be a doctor who's looking to bet on horse races. And that's the start of a sting. I said when he's a character out of the sting, he leads bookmakers into thinking he's a doctor who's going to help get bets from the around the hospital, and it's the start of a wonderful con game in which the bookmakers get taken because Fred has a way to get the results of the races uh, and then place the bets on on horses he knows has won, and the bookie is not aware of he's getting the results. I mean, elaborate, elaborate sting where you have all the Confederates with you. So he's a wonderful con man that I trace basically for almost a full century, and he gets by on his wits. And what's ironic is he has a son. He has a daughter and a son, both of whom also believe that life is about victimizing the suckers in the world. In, in late age, I met his daughter, and who lived to be 92. The son, however, is not quite a believer in using your wits. The son is a fellow named Jack Whalen, who in later life becomes known as Jack the Enforcer. And he grows up to be this powerful, dashing figure. Who during World War II was a pilot, and he, you know, he had everything going for him. Gorgeous guy. He got his pictures taken to try to make it in Hollywood. He flew, he flew private planes after flying in the war, and uh, but in the end, he was just a, a head knocker. He would collect for bookies. He became a bookie himself, and he was a traditional kind of enforcer guy who shook down other bookies in other words if you didn't uh, give him protection pay him he would either clobber you or he would uh, somehow wind up turning you into the police i mean he shook everyone down so you had this son of the great con man fred Whalen who becomes a thuggy enforcer while very dashing and good-looking. And at some point, he and Mickey Cohen collide. I mean, he he wants to move in on Mickey Cohen's rackets. So there in the world of the underworld, you have Mickey Cohen, who's tied to the traditional mafia, although he's Jewish, and he's a peacock. And then you have this second-generation Waylon, who wants to move in on him so you have the classic conflict there and those were the the hoodlums that fascinated me very different
0: yeah so let's turn it around now and actually talk about how the police decided one why did they decide to do something about it when so many other places around the country and around the world police often don't respond so was it individuals who decided this that someone had to respond and then we'll move into how they did respond
1: Okay, well, first of all, you have to remember a lot of people listening today will not understand. I mean, they've seen the movies, uh, largely the Godfather films, and they think that everybody knew about that. Well, back in the uh, the World War II period, yes, you, they knew there were desperados and hoodlums who had shootouts with Tommy guns. I mean, this was known, but the idea that there was a national network in America... Uh, that literally was coordinated and very sophisticated was totally unknown, and the the leading law enforcement figure in America was a guy named J. Edgar Hoover. You may have heard of because he's yep. been a figure in movies, and he was a very square jawed guy who who at least played the role of being Mister Honest Law Enforcement. And he was the head of the National Federal Bureau of Investigation. And he made his name uh, combating bank-robbing desperados, people like Pretty Boy Floyd and John Dillinger, uh, who particularly during the Depression period went around robbing banks. And and Hoover went after them and got them. But they were desperados. You know, they, they had little gangs. And Hoover denied all the time that there was any sort of sophisticated national organized crime network. And some people thought maybe the mob, the traditional mafia, the Italian mafia had, you know, blackmail material on him because he opposed any effort to, uh, publicize this fact so in los angeles it was very novel in 1946 what happened was after the war los angeles grows into this bursting city that's now the third largest city in america behind new york and chicago and it's it's very prosperous with all these big aerospace companies uh i mean new housing developments are going up on what used to be farmland and and prairie land i mean it's just bursting with uh and and a million people and then you know every decade it's just growing and all of a sudden these bodies start showing up on the street i mean you know two guys shot in the back of a in 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 the front of a car and you know slumped forward and the bullet holes in the through the glass The sort of scene that you think of happening in Chicago wasn't supposed to happen in Los Angeles. There were a series of these. One took place in a bookie joint that Mickey Cohen controlled. You know, a a rival bookie came in and Mickey shot him. This is one crime Mickey did commit. And uh, there were no witnesses. And Mickey said, you know, he came at me with a gun. I had no choice. I let him have it. And there were no witnesses to say otherwise. So uh, that was self-defense. And you had a series of these, and one day the police chief in Los Angeles uh, says, we've had enough, and he asks a very street-savvy sergeant about to be elevated to lieutenant to form a secretive squad to get rid of these uh, human scum and do whatever it took, and to do it in a very quiet way. So he basically takes the first steps, this is in 1946, to form a very secretive, small, uh, elite unit that would uh, kick butt. You know, several of these guys were giant sized. Uh, One of my favorite is a fellow who literally was called Jumbo Canard. And he was from Texas, a little town in Texas where his father was a constable. And then Jumbo had worked uh, as a 16-year-old. He went to the oil fields, where he was what's called a roughneck. And I love uh, one of the pictures I got. His sister, who's still alive, got a, had a picture of him in the oil fields. And he looks about 40 years old when he's 17. I mean, he's already, and he's a giant figure as big as the oil wells. And he could put his hand over someone's head and lift them up off a seat just by grasping his hand on top of their head. So he was typical of one type of character they had on this squad, the muscle man. And uh, then you also, they had a, one expert in uh, bugging, a guy who had come out of the war with a metal brace on his leg, but was a very wizard at electronics. And his name was Conwell Keeler. And he could make secret uh, bugging devices out of old hearing aid parts. He would take that and, and little receivers some and telephones and make crude bugs themselves. So you had the, the wire man, and then you sort of had the clever, the clever characters who were, you know, the sort of leaders. And all these guys were quick with their fists. I mean, they, it was a very different, crude, cruder era. If you know a lot about police work, every generation looks back at the one before and says, how did they get away with what they did? Mm. You know, each succeeding generation uh, gets a little more refined, but they're still uh, pretty rough when you look at them in retrospect. And this group was, uh, you know, very rugged.
0: Mm. I I was actually quite surprised that... um I'd say how blatant they were with their tactics, too. It wasn't the subtle um, sort of image you see today from the FBI or any of those other sorts of agencies.
1: Well, you know, one of the things, when I eventually got a a police report, if you went back over the first half of the 20th century in Los Angeles, uh, I mean, there were a huge number of mob killings, but there would be a bunch. I mean, it started out the Italians killed each other over control of, uh, you know, a little wine sales, but also even fruit carts. They had these little peddlers, had their, their fruit carts and vegetable carts, and, you know, someone wanted to get protection. If you want to have a good side, you're going to pay me. And so there were early shootings over control of the, uh, you know, the, for the fruit carts. And then later on, they battle over, prohibition who's going to control the liquor trade and you know they shot some shotgunning but all the 20th century los angeles had never gotten the conviction in any of these killings and and uh B- bugsy siegel was involved in a couple of them uh he helped wipe out there was some witness uh, against the mob from new york who fled to los angeles and they found out he was here and they wiped him mm-hmm. out bugsy personally took part in that but two things happened. Uh, no witness would ever testify, or they were dead. The other thing is the mob really did have a tradition then of omerta oh, was the name. You know, the, the "Till Death" the, the the code of silence. Mm. You really never tattled, and it held up back then. This was before you started getting every third guy wired him you know agreed to be wired up on behalf of the authorities or you know you know the film the godfather right where there was uh the, the one fellow agrees to testify and they put him in a uh you know like an army base and finally he he goes and testifies at a congressional hearing i mean that's a real character named joe Valachi. that's right But that's not till 1963, and he's the first one who talks about things like mafia blood oath uh, that you have made members, that you have these five families, and that there are, you know, there's the boss, the don, the godfather, and then you have capos. Nobody knew any of this, and there was this total code of silence. So it's not till 1963 that there's the first turncoat. And by the way, it's another decade before there's the second great uh, mafia turncoat. And he is a Los Angeles guy uh, named Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano. So it's not until 63 and 73. We're talking about 1946. Mm. So what happened is none of these crimes were solved, and you couldn't get any turncoats in the mob. So their tactic was basically... uh, you know, harass them, terrorize them, and get them the hell out of here. Yep. So my main character, you know, in the book, one of the two main characters is a guy named Jack O'Mara, whose family comes from Portland, Oregon. He's an Irish kid, little little tough little guy. You know, he's in a lot of scraps as a kid, and uh, he would be in 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 rugby like the center halfback. You know, the yeah. the guy who the ball and uh, uh, he he's he, you know not sophisticated, but in the war they give during World War II they gave him intelligence tests, and all of a sudden found out he had brains, and they put him in in a code breaking unit up in Alaska trying to help intercept Japanese communications and break the code. And as I say in the book, who knew he had brains? You know, and all of a sudden he goes from being this kind of uh, fist first wiry kid and comes out of the service and he's a bigger and uh you know it's a man. Yeah. And he gets he's one of the what I call the the brains of the gangster squad. But but what he would do was he would take gangsters up into the hills uh of the city and uh the, the little mountains that it run through the middle of Los Angeles. If you've ever been there and yeah. Mulholland Drive runs across it. And they would take these gangsters up and he would stick guns in their ear and, you know, tell them uh unless you want a big explosion that looks like skis, you know, get the hell out of our city and tell your people uh this is not a friendly place for them. So this was Jack O'Mara and you know, one of the things I loved that I traced uh, he was the first one that I located who was still alive, and we had a great relationship. But you you hear stories about this guy, and it sounds so crude. And later on in life, he he gets a college degree and a master's degree, and his daughter became a Harvard professor. You know, I mean, you don't you don't want to just. Dismiss him too easily as just a thug. Anyway, but that's the sort of thing the squad did, and they operated out of two cars at first. These were old, old cars. There were rust holes in the floor. You know, their feet could go right down uh, through the bottom of the car. It was so old. Uh, they would meet. They didn't even have an office to start. They met in street corners or in the hills. and And then slowly they became more... You know, they got a little office, and they then one of the police chiefs decided they were maybe the most honest corner of the police department, and then they wound up right in City Hall, right in the police chief's office. So they went from operating in the hills, you know... They didn't exist like they didn't exist to being right in the seat of power to do the, the bidding of the city's uh, police chief. So it was an interesting evolution.
0: Yeah. Uh, How again, successful were they? I mean, did they succeed at all in reducing the amount of crime or getting these guys to leave town? Uh, they,
1: they They did. I mean, on the other hand, I, again, I'm not a fictionalizer. So I almost, and and one of the attractive things about these characters were, unlike people today, they were not boastful and self-promotional. So that's what I liked about them. When they would tell stories, they would always understate what they did. Uh, They would tell stories on themselves, you know. um, And as as I... Right, in the book, a lot of their victories were you know you settled for what you could get, so I'll give you one example uh the the old the the Italian mobsters uh, were never that wild about Mickey Cohen moving in on the rackets, even though Mickey had a lot of Italian allies uh back east. but there was some old, real old school mafiosa in Los Angeles that uh thought mickey uh Belonged in the graveyard So they were constantly shooting at him and his men And one day Mickey was in his home And dynamite exploded under his house And uh, luckily for Mickey He wasn't killed And his little pet doggy wasn't killed The maid wasn't killed His wife wasn't killed But they were pretty sure The cops were pretty sure That his main Italian rival A guy named Jack Dragner Was behind this so they go and round up Dragna and all his men and his son, and none of them, you know, again, they, they try every tactic. They isolate them and, you know, try to bluff them. and Nobody says anything. I mean, the mob really was very good back then at keeping quiet. So none of the Dragna say anything. They hold them for three days and then release them. After which, uh, Dragna has his son... Filed suit against the police department. Now his son had been a soldier in the war and lost an eye, and he'd been a college boy, you know, sort of like the uh, Pacino character in The Godfather. He was yeah. uh, he, ha- he had the uh, surface cultivation. So he filed suit against the gangster squad and the head of the police department. And, you know, this is the way the war goes, on behalf of the son, not not the father. The father wouldn't do it himself. So how do the cops handle that? I mean, this is an example of, of what you do. Uh, they know that Dragna himself, the, the old school Sicilian born Italian mafiosa, has a girlfriend. He has a wife, but he also has a girlfriend. So they break in, and they plant a bug in the girlfriend's apartment. Where do they plant it? Literally, not just in her bedroom, in the headboard of her bed. She has a big wooden headboard. There's a big sunburst pattern, you know, like a sun and all this, mm. uh, the, the sun you know, bursting out. Right in the middle of the sun, they drill a little hole, they put a uh, bug in there, they, they put a hole in the wall and lead it down into the basement where they listen. How do they get Jack Dragon? And they do hear him at the girlfriend's place. You know, he, he does talk a little bit. He makes some phone calls about a new casino in Las Vegas. That's not how they get him. Uh, and by, uh, they get him waiting for him to have sex with his girlfriend for sex acts that then were considered deviant. Huh. And, you know, today you see the same sex acts uh, simulated in movies all the time. Uh, in fact, uh, Dragna would, would had his buddy over, another mafiosa. They would play uh, a game called Canasta late into the night. And the cops would get frustrated. It's not what they wanted. So they'd shut the power off in the building <laughs> and make them sleep. So what they did was they um, got him uh on sex acts. You know, a guy who'd ordered all these killings and try and he had killed a couple of Mickey Cohn's men. And they tried to use that to um blackmail uh, not blackmail to get him uh, deported. So that would be the sort of way and they did, and by the way, they there were deportation hearings were ongoing against um Uh, what's his name, Uh, Dragna, at the time he died, he um, uh, dropped dead of a heart attack in a motel. You know, they found on him some cash and a statue of Jesus. So that sort of way, yes, you know, you don't get him for murder, but you harass him through a sex case that also embarrasses the hell out of him, and you move to deport him. So they had victories like that. They got Mickey Cohn twice on tax charges, and the long picture was, I, you know, largely I, I don't try to glamorize this at all, because they there were almost more defeats and there were victories, but the long term was that the Italian mob never did gain the same foothold in Los Angeles as it had in New York, Los Angeles, uh, you know, Chicago and Detroit. There were all sorts of reasons for that. I mean, beyond what the police did, but the obsession of Los Angeles with the gangsters was uh one reason that the mob never gained a foothold, so to that degree, they were uh successful but their their sort of tactics belonged in another era, slowly you know new uh, uh legal. Uh, laws came in effect that said you couldn't do some of this stuff. Uh, this squad in particular was responsible for the major California State Supreme Court decision that said police and prosecutors could no longer use illegally obtained evidence uh, against suspects. They they had uh, bugged someone else and uh, a big bookie that was uh, associated with the mob. And the way it came out in court was, again, that they had bugged someone's bedroom. And, you know, the judges, and it really was not a bedroom, by the way. It was a, you know, a place where they, the bookie had his clerks, but it was in a house. And so, you know, judges said, I'm outraged that you would do this without a search, without a warrant. You know, you you at least, to get evidence against someone, you at least have to go before a judge. So, in a way, the squad was responsible for California changing the ground rules for policing.
2: Right, right. So, and God.
1: by the way, of course, police still tried to evade, you know, they still did what they wanted. I mean, this is the age old, you know, uh, the, the policemen, like many other professions, they sort of try to get away with things. And, you know, there's a cat and mouse, what we call a cat and mouse game between the law which says, here's what you're supposed to do. And they've always felt some righteousness in doing whatever it takes to get uh, suspects. Yep. And, uh, you know, so this squad was an example of that. But at some point, they realized their time had passed, mm. you know, for that sort of policing.
0: Yep. Well, I can't let you go without talking about the movie and your experiences with the movie. So how did the movie come about in the first place? And then um, how did the structure of what became the movie arise out of a quite different story in your book
1: well what what happened was uh, I originally wrote a seven part serialization of the Gangster Squad story for uh, the Los Angeles Times a newspaper in Los Angeles and after that I had you know all sorts of studios knocking at my door wanting to make movies and uh, you know I'm not stupid I, I said yes, and uh, Warner Brothers uh, purchased the rights, and Warner Brothers was the studio that had made a lot of the great gangster films of, you know, the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, one of the ironies I loved was this film wound up being set in 1949, uh, which was the year gangsters uh, Warner Brothers had a film called White Heat, in which Jimmy Cagney famously plays a gangster who's kind of infatuated with his mother and winds up being blown up in uh, the top of uh, an oil refinery. And his last words, you know, made it, my top of the world. And he blows up. So, I mean, there's a tradition of Hollywood doing gangster films that are, how should we say, uh, a little exaggerated and fictionalized. But Warner Brothers bought the rights, and uh, uh, it went from there. You know, they they will do what they'll do. I mean, they were not going to make a documentary, and they wanted to make a kind of uh, action film. And uh, you know, I got to write memos, but I certainly uh, I did not write the script and. Uh, uh, they were very open that it was going to be fictionalized. So sometimes they will say in movies based on a true story mm. uh this one they said inspired by a true story. So it was <laughs> it was even one step more uh removed. And I would say the big difference was they I mean I demythologized uh for instance Mickey Cohen as a character as I've described to you a few minutes ago. I mean he was largely a uh performance artist, I mean, he, he went on television as a gangster, he was, uh, you know, inviting the big magazine in to take pictures of him, and, uh, you know, so he was a showboat, he was the perfect gangster for Los Angeles, because he was image-obsessed, much like the city was. In, in the film, they wanted him to be a real badass gangster, you know, that killed a lot of people, you uh, one of the, the American newspapers the New York times said, you know, he came out as a villain, like out of a Batman movie, which is true. So in a way, I mean, Sean Penn plays Mickey Cohen in the film and, you know, he'll do what he's, you you hire a Sean Penn, he creates a character and, uh, you know, he, he played him really broad. So, that's how it was. The real Mickey Cohen, as I said, was largely a, uh, a BSer. So, yeah. I mean, that's the difference between film. But they they were pretty open about what they were going to do. They wanted a, you know, an action film to appeal to young audiences. And where my book is more of a look at the city that's obsessed with its image. And the gangster who's obsessed with his image and the collision between those two. Mm. So it's a little different, uh, yeah. you know.
0: I mean, my preference, having, you know, when I was reading the book was that this would have worked much better like a HBO miniseries rather than a movie. So the option's yeah. still there.
1: You should try and sell it off again, get two stories made out of one book. Well, you sound like my wife, you know. <laughs> but, but yeah, you, you can't, uh, you get one bite at that apple. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, the the demythologizing uh, approach is, um, um, you know, uh, yeah, you could take it. There's there's a film. Are you are you a film? Uh, oh yes, definitely. film yes, absolutely. I mean, an old film that's somewhat along the lines of of the way I saw Mickey Cohen. Uh, is one, uh, made by Robert Altman about the American West called McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Mm. And I don't know if you know that one. It's a tremendous look at the American West where, uh, Warren Beatty plays the kind of Mr. Big in this little West town. And, you know, he's kind of a strutting guy and you get a sense that he's a phony and you know you have to see i i strongly recommend your listeners look at that but but that's not you know again it's a it's a demythologizing you're not going to make a uh 70 million dollar film about you know a gangster who's mostly uh posturing and not shooting a lot of people yeah, that's so right. um, anyway, that's that's the 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 what happened and uh they certainly had a good cast. I will say that. Yeah. Well,
0: I found even the HBO series can depart from the truth. I read the uh, book that's the background to Boardwalk Empire, and they didn't even keep the names the same. So it's uh, they needed to get a lot more nudity and violence into it before they were going to make a lot of money out of it. So they obviously went down that track.
1: Well, the, the Boardwalk Empire, yeah. You know, a lot of people are killed. You know, the number. You look at any of these things. Uh, you know, the real. Death tolls are, uh, you know, nothing like uh, uh, what you'll get in any of these uh, fictional presentations. I, I once had a book uh, plopped on my desk that supposedly was about the mob in uh, Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and it was listed as nonfiction, and it was it was actually written by a former FBI agent. And all of a sudden, I went to the last chapter, and there's a huge shootout where one of the mobsters is killed and, like, five people are killed. I said, maybe I missed the whole chapter in history. I don't think anything like that happened. (laughs) And then I looked at it, or maybe I spoke to the guy. I said, well, you know, they wanted to make the story better. It was listed as nonfiction. And, you know, one of the characters who lived a long life, uh with minimal interference by the law, is is gunned down, and you know so th- th- that that that's uh, there's a tradition of doing that. So Boardwalk Empire, yes, there's a, there's a lot of uh, killing and a lot of good-looking women. And uh, now, by the way, in truth, Mickey Cohen did have a lot of girlfriends who were burlesque dancers, mm. you know, strippers for a better word. He uh, part, so that really you know that he would have. Uh, a kind of eye candy women around is very much in character, and uh, you know uh, we've got a lot of photos of them in the book.
0: And I've got to say, you're absolutely right. They, he certainly didn't settle for a substandard women in his life. He definitely got the oh, good looking ones.
1: But it was part of the show. Mm. You know, my favorite. By the way, I'll just give one little story. I mean, there was one of these women who was an exotic dancer called Miss Beverly Hills. I mean, she, she looked good. And uh he uh, gave her very publicly announced they were engaged, and he had this 12-carat diamond ring that he would give, like, one woman after another. The only catch was she actually was married and living with her husband very happily. And it, it was all an act. You know, she said his public is... Uh, her manager also knew him, and they thought it would be great publicity. Mm. And Mickey was t- attached; he was promoting a restaurant, so they had the, you know, the announcement at the restaurant. So here's this stripper announcing that she's she and Mickey are, are getting married, and Mickey's there, and she's really married to her hairdresser very happily. And by the way, that woman is still alive, and you know what she what became of her in later life? No. She became a minister. <laughs> Uh, But, you know, one of the glorious things about that was, so here she is wearing this 12-carat diamond ring, and, of course, uh, law enforcement agencies are hiding in the bushes, taking pictures of this ring. Because, you know, how does Mickey Cohn afford a 12-carat diamond ring when he's, you know, listing his income as... um, Yeah, well, he was bankrupt, basically, yeah. That's... That's the real Mickey Cohen, and, and uh, you know he he was not the wisest man in his uh, public action.
0: No. So, what are you working on now? What's the next thing we can expect from Paul? I'm
1: uh, doing I'm doing something actually. It's set in uh, Russia uh, in the era when the Soviet regime was unraveling. And the Russian mob was rising up, so it's it's that era where uh kind of one one set of uh foolish thugs is being replaced by another set of foolish thugs, mm-hmm. and it involves some real characters who are caught between those two uh those two forces but it's a fascinating world that you know crumbling world uh and uh I'm I'm very enthusiastic about it. I love getting absorbed in in those realms.
0: Well, I'd be more than happy to talk to you again when you've got that one out as well. Very good. Thank you so much. No, well, thank you very much for spending your time with me today.